0: We saw last time that Moses was born in the midst of a campaign of infanticide that Pharaoh had been waging against the Hebrews, that all the young Hebrew baby boys were to be thrown into the Nile River. But his mother and his father determined they were not going to do that, but they were going to save his life. And they hid him in the reeds in the Nile River, and Pharaoh's daughter found him. And she drew him out of the water and determined she was going to raise him as her own. And Moses, his own mother, Yachaved, had the chance to raise her child to be his wet nurse until he was ready to go into the house of Pharaoh. And that is where we left them off. And what we've already seen is that Moses was born with a destiny. God had a plan for Moses' life. It's It's so apparent Even though it's not come out and said, and this is the one that God was going to use. You just know. It's very clear. And I've dealt with this in great depth before, but I want to remind us all that every one of you has a plan on your life. God has a purpose for you. Not just that your life has abstract purpose, right, that it's not meaningless. No, no, no. God has a specific purpose for you. He created you for a reason. Psalm 139, he goes in great detail and he says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And he says, before any of them had been lived, you saw all of my days laid out before me. God told Jeremiah, before you were born, I called you and ordained you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah had a job before he was even born. John the Baptist, same thing, right? Samson and Samuel, same thing. And you say, well, those are heroes. That's not me. But Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 says that, we have been saved by grace through faith, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So not only does Moses have a plan and a purpose for his life, so do you. You have a specific reason that God created you for, and he's equipped you with spiritual gifts to accomplish that mission. I tell you this so that you will identify with Moses as the story goes through. And we get excited by that destiny, and rightly so, right? Right? We get excited by the fact that there's a reason I'm alive. You, you know, it when, when your aptitude and your interests line up with the job that you have, man, that's, that's a magical feeling. It's like, wow, I get to get up and I'm not really working because I get to do what I want to do. It all just lines up. That's the same kind of feeling you have when you know what God has called you to do. I know why I'm here. But here's the thing. We have a tendency when we learn this to rush ahead prematurely and say, well, if I know what I'm doing, I might as well just go. And that's not always a good thing. And sometimes we make mistakes and have false starts. But here's the deal. God will often allow us to trip up at the beginning because that drives us into the wilderness. And you say, why the wilderness? Because that is where God needs you to be. Turn, if you will, we're actually going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm just going to read these five verses. You can listen if you like, but it's a longish passage. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Speaking of the wilderness, this is after the children of Israel had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Deuteronomy is right before they enter the promised land. And this is what God says about their their time there. Deuteronomy 8 says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. Right there, there's that destiny we were talking about. There was a reason. There was a promised land so to speak. And if we want to take that metaphorically, there's a promised land of your life that God wants to lead you to. But look at what he says. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Now he's going to tell them why they were in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. So he's saying, I put you in the wilderness and allowed you to go through all that because I was testing you, I was training you. The wilderness is God's gym, so to speak. as how he's going to build you up. I let you be hungry. I let you be thirsty so that you would learn I'm the one that's going to take care of you. Verse 5, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. That's what the wilderness is for, for discipline from God. God has sent all of his children in one way or another to the wilderness to test them, to mature them, to prepare them for the life that he's given them to live. We've seen this already in the life of Joseph and Jacob especially. The wilderness in the Bible is a symbol of that growth, of testing, of transformation. It's not always a desert as we often think of it. Sometimes, like in the case of Jonah, it's a watery wilderness. Sometimes it's a foreign land that is the wilderness. But in this case, it's actually going to be a literal wilderness as it was for the children of Israel. And that's where Moses is going to need to be to get ready for what God has called him to do. If you have ever tried to reach out and lay hold of your destiny and slipped and missed, I feel like I was going to do what God called me to do, and I took a step and it didn't work. You know how Moses feels in this story. He's going to end up not in Pharaoh's palace anymore, but in the wilderness for 40 years But those years of preparation are invaluable, as Moses is going to learn, and we will too over the next few weeks. So let's read, back in Exodus now, verses 11 through 12 of chapter 2. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now it just says one day. Now you've got to remember there is a 40-year gap between verse 10 and verse 11. Last time we saw Moses, he had just been weaned. But now, as we know from other places in Scripture, Acts 7.23, it's been 40 years. He's a grown man now. He's not even a young man. He's not even a young impressionable fellow. He is a grown man. And he has spent those 40 years raised in Pharaoh's household. So you've got to picture what kind of man this would be. Acts 7.22, Stephen tells us, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. The 18th and 19th dynasties of Egypt, which is the time period we're talking about. We believe specifically the 18th dynasty. This was the pinnacle of Egyptian learning and culture. Their literature was thriving. The average courtier would know four or five different languages in order to communicate around the world. Moses would have been an educated man. Egypt was especially renowned for their wisdom. Even later on Solomon is going to talk about one who had mastered the Egyptian wisdom literature, which is just practical, wise, everyday living, right? We have some of it in the book of Proverbs. So, not only mighty in words, but in deeds. He was a prince. He was not in line for the throne in any way, but he was a prince, an Egyptian prince. This is important for us to note, but it is also important for us to know what's Hollywood and what's scripture. Because I'll tell you, and I'm not bashing it, The Ten Commandments and The Prince of Egypt are two of my favorite movies of all time. I love them to death. However, there are a few things that they take some creative license with That we need to make sure we know what the Bible actually says. Both of those films hinge on a moment in Moses' life when he finds out he was a Hebrew. And that changes everything, right? That's probably not the case here. It it is, in all likelihood, Moses knew who he was. In fact, I'm I'm sure they never let him forget who he was. He was sort of a novelty in the pal. He's sort of like the, the token Hebrew in the court of Pharaoh. And I'm sure Pharaoh would parade him around and see, see, even I can be merciful. Moses himself is a Hebrew. Moses was probably mocked for being a Hebrew. But, I mean, remember, he, had, he was raised as a very young boy by his own Hebrew mother. He was adopted into Pharaoh's family by one of Pharaoh's probably many daughters, right? And In in this culture and in many cultures even still, a man would have a relationship with his wet nurse well into adulthood because some of that early bonding that typically happens with the mother would happen with someone's wet nurse. So there's no reason to believe that Moses did not know exactly who he was. So separate from Egypt in a way, but also still separate from his people, sort of trapped in, in between And so he goes out one day. Perhaps he did this regularly. I read one commentator that, because this is in what's called the cowl imperfect form, that this was a regular thing, that Moses used to regularly go out. But can't be certain. The point is he's out, and he sees a Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian. Now, they're slaves. This is not uncommon. This is nothing that is unusual, but... Moses can't, can't take it anymore. And it says he looks this way and he looks that way. And what's going on? I mean, perhaps this was illegal, right? Perhaps this person did not own that particular Hebrew. Maybe there was no relationship like that, but it was just an act of abuse going on. Or maybe was Moses was looking around. Is anybody going to do something about this? Is anybody going to step in and stop this? Or maybe he's thinking, is anybody going to see what I'm about to do? Probably a mix of those things, right? And it says he struck This Egyptian. And he killed him. Now perhaps he meant to kill the Egyptian. And perhaps not. Perhaps he intended to stop him only. But perhaps he did fully intend to kill this man. He struck him down. Now what's going on here? Now this is another thing that in in some of the adaptations. It's made to look like an accident. And Moses is horrified. What have I done? Well. We see in Acts chapter 7, and we'll read this verse in a little bit, that Moses knew who he was. And he had some sense of that destiny on his life. He had heard the Hebrew promises of the Deliverer to come. And perhaps there had been whispers from his own mother or others that, Moses, it's you. And then Moses, in his princely arrogance, says, yeah, maybe it's me. And he steps in and he kills this Egyptian. He's ready to go for it. And the thing is, he was the guy. He had been called to help Israel cast off Egypt. And he's ready to go for it. But here's the problem. Moses is presuming upon the Lord's will here. He's not waiting upon the timing of God. He's also presuming upon his own preparedness. He thinks he's ready. But what he does not understand, and there's there's a great play on words that comes through the book of exodus here it is god who is going to strike egypt moses is going to have another problem later when he's going to strike the rock when god told him not to moses had a problem with striking things that he was not supposed to be striking and he is only there to be a mouthpiece for the lord jeremiah addressed a similar problem in jeremiah twenty three twenty one. the lord said i did not send the prophets yet they ran I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. These are prophets, but they're speaking like they're speaking for God, even though God had not told them to. Now, a prophet is supposed to prophesy, but God goes, but I didn't send you this time. Yes, Moses, you will be the one to deliver Israel, but not yet and not like this. He's rushing ahead, and rushing ahead is a very common theme in the Bible of God's chosen ones. They did this an awful lot. Consider Jacob. Jacob had been prophesied over from before he was born that the older shall serve the younger. And Rebekah knew this. His mother knew this. And you can bet she was probably telling him all the time. Day comes where he swindles Esau out of his birthright. Remember that? I'll give you the stew if you give me your birthright. Then later on he goes and he deceives his blind father into giving him the blessing. He rushed ahead, somehow thinking that it's my responsibility to make the prophecy of God happen, rather than standing back and saying, let's see how the Lord works out his sovereign will. Consider Paul, Paul who rushed ahead of the Lord a little bit. Paul was struck down on the road to Damascus. The Lord spoke to him. He was saved. He was baptized. He was filled with the Spirit. And immediately he begins to preach. And in Damascus, they run him out of town. And then he goes to Jerusalem. He expects they're going to receive him in Jerusalem. And they run him out of town there. Now, it doesn't say that Paul was wrong for doing that. But you can certainly get the sense that God's like, Paul, not yet. It's not your time. It's not my time. And you are not ready. I know you, you have had a revelation. And you're learning all of these new things. And all of your Hebrew training is coming back. But the Lord's like, you've still got a lot of things to learn, Paul. You might know exactly what your calling is. And I hope you do. The Lord sharpens that for me every day. He tends to give me my, my calling in pieces. It's going to be something like this, and here's the first step. But some of you know, you can straight up say without a shadow of doubt, this is what God's called me to do. Or maybe you just have a general sense. But here's the thing. That does not mean it is your job to make it happen. doesn't mean you should be lazy, but that's a lesson for another day. Your job is not to make things happen. There are some people that even approach biblical prophecy that way. They say, well, the Bible said that this is going to happen, so let's let's suit up and let's go make it happen. Do you see? Look at Moses' efforts here. He's violent. He's murderous. He's not spiritual, which is what God is going to lead him to be. (laughs) Later on, Moses is going to be the Meekest man on earth, the Bible says. I like to think that was a note that Joshua added about Moses. Moses, if somebody came and accused him, he would bow before the Lord and let the Lord speak for him. He's not there yet. He's still thinking like an Egyptian. How did the Egyptians get what they want? They took it. They stepped up and they violently took what they wanted. And Moses says, well, I'm going to do something for God, but I'm going to do it like an Egyptian. No. It's better to be like David. David. David had been anointed king by Samuel. Remember that? And now he starts working for Saul. All the time, knowing in the back of his head, I'm the one who's anointed to be king. Saul knew it too. Saul got paranoid and started chasing David down. Twice, David had the chance to kill Saul. And he had people whispering in his ear. In the caves of Engedi, they said, David, look, the Lord has delivered King Saul into your hands. Strike him down. You'll be the king just like God promised. And instead, David cuts the robe and holds it up and tells Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Another time, they sneak into the camp, and there's Saul. And his men are like, David, there's Saul right there. This is the day that God prophesied. And one of his men says, David, I'll do it. (laughs) You want me to do it? I'll do it. And David goes, far be it from me to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. David was willing to wait. And therefore the Lord was able to bring him the kingdom without it being tarnished by the way he got it. Or like Jesus himself. If there's anybody who had a calling on his life? Jesus of Nazareth, right? But Jesus did not do a thing until he had been baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him. 30 years he waited. Living out a humble life as a construction worker. Nobody ever thought Jesus was special. Until God said, now. So don't rush ahead of the Lord. Just because you can see the problem that you're being called to fix doesn't mean now is the time. Wait upon the Lord. Verse 13, now let's see what happened. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? You mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Hmm. Not exactly how he wanted it to go, huh? He goes out again, and maybe Moses is starting to feel, starting to swagger a little bit now. He's like, the revolution has begun, baby. I took out that one guy, and now that guy's going to go and tell all his friends, Moses saved my life. Well, he comes out, and he sees two Hebrews fighting this time. And he goes up, and you can just picture him schmoozing like a politician. Hey, hey, brothers, brothers, what are we fighting each other for? we got to be fighting Pharaoh. we got to fight the man. Don't let the man make you fight each other. I'm here to deliver, and this guy just shoves him away. And, you know, th- doesn't this sound exactly how men sound when they're picking a fight with each other. It says, who made you boss? Oh, you're going to kill me if I say you're going to kill me like you killed that guy? Getting in Moses' face. (laughs) He tries to step in as a judge. And again, the irony is that's exactly what he's going to be later, is the judge of Israel. He tries to rebuke that. It says the one in the wrong literally there. It says the wicked one of the two. Note this, and this is not a rabbit show. I'm going to go on. Sin is not reserved to class or status. The point you're trying to get from this passage is there's an Egyptian striking down a Hebrew. Next day, there's a Hebrew striking down the Hebrew. And Moses struck down the Egyptian. The striking is what's wrong. It's not, well, he's a Hebrew, therefore it's okay for him to do that. That's not how God's law works. Moses is rebuffed by these men. Acts 7.25, Stephen, again, gives us some insight to the situation. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. He thinks they're going to get it. Doesn't that just sound like a spoiled rich kid? They'll get it. It's me. It's me. I, I, I'm from the courts of Pharaoh. And so th- this is something that can happen. And, and I'll tell you, people don't like this. When somebody who is totally disconnected from your life like when some really rich person comes and wants to try to identify with the poor we all look at that on tv we just go ugh, because it's like what are you doing you're trying to be just it's it's, we can see right through you man you're trying to use us Moses here and this is this is really I believe the best way to to read this Moses I'm sure had a sense of what God was calling him to do but Moses we don't see him knowing God at this point I think Moses is more trying to leverage his position to gain power for himself. Moses is trying to stage a slave rebellion here. He's trying to do a Spartacus thing here. We're going to stage a revolution. Because remember why Pharaoh was afraid of the Hebrews? There's so many. One day they'll rise up against us. They were afraid. Remember after the Hyksos rulers, the Hyksos kings who had been Semitic rulers over Egypt, they had just driven them out. And so they said, we're not ever going to let this happen again. Well, Moses is probably thinking along those lines. He's trying to to use a phrase that's entered common parlance here. He's trying to play the Game of Thrones here. He's trying to say, I don't have any place in the line of succession. So the only way I'm going to be powerful is if I have an army behind me. And I'm a Hebrew. And here's a whole army of oppressed Hebrews. And everybody's scared of them. So I'm going to step in and I'm going to start getting these people on my team you can just you can feel the arrogance dripping off of him can't you he assumed that they're all gonna know my destiny they're all gonna know i'm a i'm a wise privileged egyptian people hate that though remember joseph hey fellas i had a dream last night and you're all gonna bow down to me oh look here comes the dreamer how about we kill him and see what happens to his dreams then i wonder if you dream when you're dead This is what happens, huh? The destiny was refused. He took a step towards what was, in fact, his destiny, and it didn't happen. This can happen in a number of ways. It can happen like this, through failure, where you step out way out of line, and God's like, I'm not blessing that. I didn't tell you to go. Oh, you prophesied, but I didn't tell you to prophesy. Yes, Moses, you will be the deliverer, but did I say now? I did not. It's hard to tell whether he had heard from the Lord at all at this point. It can also happen in other ways, though. It can happen through fear, by being afraid to take a step at all. You know what God's called you to do, and he tells you to go, and you're like Barak in the book of Judges. It was time to go, and he was scared to go. And so he tells the prophetess Deborah, you've got to come with me. And she goes, are you sure you want me to come with you? You want everyone to know that you were too scared to go into battle so you needed the woman to come with you and hold your hand and babysit you? You all know who Deborah is. You don't know who Barack is because I said that and you all went, what, the president? No, not the president. Different guy. <laughs> he was scared. He was afraid to step out into what God had called him. Gideon was scared and just about missed it. God had to smack him upside the head. He said, that's enough fleeces, Gideon. It's time to get up and get to work. But sometimes your destiny does not happen even though you think you're stepping up into it. When you try for the first time to do what you've been called to do and nobody cares, that's this point right here. I've been called to preach and you step up and you preach for the first time. Oh, it's always painful. It's just painful for everybody involved. It's painful for you because either you know you're no good or you think you're good and you're not and you can see everybody else say, like, where's the revival? Why is nobody weeping in the aisles, right? Or the first time you lead worship, even though you know you've been called, or the first time you do, you feel like, well, then I'm not going to ever do this again. That's not what the Bible teaches us, though. Consider Elijah. Elijah, God had, been, had called him to speak out against Ahab and Jezebel, and he prepares him in the desert for three years. Elijah had to go to the desert twice, actually. And he comes back and there's this great showdown between him and the prophets of Baal. Fire comes down from heaven. The rains fall and Jezebel sends out an order for his execution. And so what does Elijah do? He runs and he cries, says, God, why don't you just kill me now? I did everything you said, but nothing changed. What about Paul? We just talked about Paul. He says, God's called me to be an apostle. He had. But the first two times he preached, they tried to kill him and he had to run home. Paul had to go back and live in his parents' basement for a while, back in Tarsus. Even Jesus was rejected in Nazareth. He's been preaching everywhere, and he loves him. Everybody loves him. He comes home, and just picture this. You live in a small town, rough part of town. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, they said. Rough part of town. He's been a hard-working construction worker. You had not seen him in a while. Now he comes back, and he's got a little entourage. Jesus as you would perceive it, struts into the synagogue with a bunch of people calling him rabbi. They're like, Jesus is no rabbi. Jesus made my table. (laughs) Jesus hung my door on my house. And then Jesus stands up and begins to preach like he always does, saying things like, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And people start to say, "This this is Jesus, right? We know where his parents are. We know who his mother was. And we also kind of know that his mother had him a little early before her wedding. And was that really his father? And it says they despised him. And Jesus in Mark 6, 4 said, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. This is true. You can go out and preach and everybody loves you. You come on home. Your kids don't see you as big famous preacher guy. You're, you're just dad. You're just dad. Your mama, you're always going to be your mama's baby. doesn't matter how famous you get. It's like, Mom, you're embarrassing me. Mom, I'm kind of somebody now. She goes, oh, you can say you're somebody all you want. I, I carried you for nine months, and you're going to give me the respect I deserve, right? This is hard. When you step out to try and live out what God's called you to do, and it doesn't work, That can lead to bitterness, man. Because bitterness is when you say, well, I know it's not God's fault. (laughs) I know it's not my fault. It's their fault. They don't recognize my gifts. They don't know what they're getting. I've been giving them preaching that most people would, would beg to hear, and they just don't want it. I told them what they needed, and they didn't want to do it. They don't respect me. It's their fault. Or it can lead to shame, where you say, well, I know it's not God's fault. It can't be their fault. It must just be my fault. And now you turn inward on yourself, and it's just shameful. You're like Elijah. Lord, I'm the only Just kill me. Just please kill me, Lord. You know what? It's time for the rapture now. No one else is ever going to believe because you called me, and I'm no good. It can even just lead to quitting. That's when you do blame God. They didn't do nothing wrong. I didn't do nothing wrong. You got me into this mess, Lord. I'm not doing that again that's quitting. But you've got to be honest with yourself. Moses wasn't ready. He was trying to solve the Egyptian problem like an Egyptian. He was trying to solve the problem of violence against Israel by violence against Egypt. He's just duplicating sin on top of sin. And then he's going to kill this Egyptian and then go tell this guy to stop hitting his brother. They saw right through that. You hypocrite. You're going to tell me you killed that guy yesterday. I don't want to hear that from you. He wasn't ready. Paul wasn't ready. John Wesley wasn't ready. The first time he went out to become a missionary in Georgia. He had already gone through the holy club with Whitfield and his brother and all these amazing things. And people thought something of John Wesley. I'm going to go plant a church in Georgia. (laughs) Didn't work. Nobody listened to him. He went home in debt, disgraced, bitter, and angry. And it was on the way back that he says, that's when I really began to meet the Lord for the first time. That was his wilderness, that ship ride home. And many others who've had those initial failures. If you've ever flamed out in spectacular fashion, when you've tried to do what God has called you to do, you need to consider the fact that maybe you were the one who jumped the gun or tried to do things in your own strength as opposed to the Lord's. That's what Moses did. And verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Someone reported this murder. And here's an interesting thought that I, that I read this week that I never considered before. I've always kind of thought, well, I'm sure he was discovered in the sand and they did an investigation, but it's also entirely possible that this guy whose life he saved ratted him out. Who's the only other one that knew what happened? this guy. Rather than saying thank you to Moses, he's going to go and go back to his slave master and try and get in good and get a little something from him. That's possible. Whatever the case, Moses is a wanted man. He's got to flee from Egypt, and he does. Hebrews eleven twenty seven says, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. It is interesting to compare Exodus 2 with Hebrews 11 because Exodus 2.14 says Moses was afraid. Hebrews 11 says he was not afraid of the anger of the king. I think what we have here is Hebrews is giving us the big picture and Exodus is giving us the details. Exodus is telling what was going through Moses' head. Hebrews is telling us the broad picture. Moses stepped up in faith and took on what God had called him to do. That's kind of a cool way of how the Lord looks at us, right? used to say to the high school group, if you're, if you're scared, do it scared. And then you can step back later and you can be like, you were so brave. Well, I was afraid. It's like, yeah, but, but you were brave. We talk about the guys that stormed the beaches at Normandy, right? Oh, I'm sure they were afraid, but they did it. So we don't remember their fear. We remember their courage. It's the same thing here for Moses. So some people want to make a big deal out of that. I wanted to address that real quick. But Moses flees into the wilderness. It's a long journey through the wilderness. The same wilderness the Israelites are going to wander in for 40 years. And he comes to Midian. Midian is to the the south of the promised land. And I saw various accounts, southwest, southeast. It's towards the wilderness side of things. And it says he sat down by a well. There's probably some time involved there. The word for sat down can be translated camped. As in, he's living by the well because he's got nowhere else to go and he needs water. Again, all the movies make it happen like the second he arrived at the well, there were the daughters of Jethro, but probably there was some time involved here. This was a long journey. He's alone, and Moses is faced with the harshness of life personally for the first time. He had observed oppression, but now he's the one actually having to go through it. It's all well and good to go and see all the terrible things going on, but then you go back to Pharaoh's palace and you can ring that little gong and someone's going to put grapes in your mouth one by one. It's like, okay, you haven't really experienced it though. He's in the wilderness. The wilderness is God's training ground, it is where He executes discipline upon His children. It biblically is a symbol of change and transformation. In many different ways. Whether that's sin, sin drives you there, and while you're there, that sin is going to be dealt with, like with Jacob. Whether God leads you there to prepare you, like with Jesus and others. Moses is going to be changed. He is not going to come out of this wilderness as the same man. And there are many, many heroes of the faith that went into the wilderness at key moments. Joseph was sold by his brothers and carried by Midianites through this same wilderness to the land of Egypt. So you've kind of got a double picture. There was the wilderness wilderness and Egypt as the wilderness. Jacob, we've already discussed him. David. David is an interesting case because David was chosen while he was in the wilderness tending his father's sheep. And then he goes back when Saul begins to persecute him and he has to go and run from Saul in the wilderness of En Gedi and elsewhere. Elijah. Elijah. Spent years in the wilderness at the brook Cherith, being fed by the ravens. Paul was in the wilderness of Arabia, and then he also was in the metaphorical wilderness in Tarsus. Nobody knew who he was for 15, 16 years. Jesus Christ was baptized and went into the wilderness. Elisha, when he had the mantle of Elijah put upon him, happened in the wilderness. You can keep going. <laughs> John the Baptist lived in the wilderness. Why why the wilderness? I mean, God could have picked any number of of images, and, and there are others, right? There's an image of being in a foreign land like Joseph, which is a kind of wilderness. Jonah is down in the depths, which is another picture of the wilderness. Water is a very common symbol of moving in and out of the desert. But why the wilderness? Why the desert? Why the picture of this desolation? Because out there... It's just you and God. There's no civilization. There's No other people. There's nowhere to hide. It's just you and God. You wake up in the morning and there's nothing to do but pray. And God can get your attention. This is why when we have our retreats, we go places where it's a little more rustic. We go out to the woods. We go to the mountains. Places where you can't get cell phone service. Because it forces you to be quiet and think and hear from God. That's why when we go on retreats and things like that, people have these amazing breakthroughs that they don't have at home. Even though they've heard the same preaching and the same worship songs, read the same Bible with the same people. When we get out into the wilderness, we go to the woods, we go to a a retreat center, wherever it is, because you are forced to confront the things that you've been able to push to the back of your mind when you're at home around normal life. That's why the wilderness. When we fail we enter the wilderness, or at least we should. But here's the good news, that God loves to draw His people into the wilderness willingly. Rather than somebody like Moses that had to flee there, God wants to just say, hey, just come here. And we can do this apart from a crisis. This is the the good news of being a Christian, is that you don't have to go through a crisis to see transformation in your life. You can do it willingly. And you ought to do it willingly. Mark 1.12, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. No one forced him out there except the Holy Spirit. And Jesus had no sin to deal with. Jesus had no internal crisis to handle. He was setting a pattern for the rest of us. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus Christ would often withdraw to desolate places and pray. Like David, he was at home in the wilderness. Read that as, he was at home in the presence of God. He was comfortable being alone with his father. When David was driven into the wilderness by Saul, he was already master of the wilderness because he had walked through the valley of the shadow of death long before Goliath. And that's why God had chosen him. Now, you've got to ask the question, okay, well, what does this mean for me? Maybe you're not going to go take a, you know, a 40-day journey into the woods, although, why not? I'll just throw that out there. How do you do this? Well, you've got to separate yourself from the rest of your life. You can do this in your heart through the regular, boring spiritual disciplines. I've had this conversation three or four times in the last week or two. When there are things that we're going through... You come back to the same old things. There's no second tier of things you'll learn as, as as a Christian. It's not like magic where now you move up to the second level and now we're going to teach you the deep thing. No, no. It's just the same old stuff. Praying. Get alone and pray. Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Before every great miracle or every great decision, Jesus prayed. The Last Supper, Jesus said, I have many things left to tell you, but I can't tell you now. Why? Because he wanted to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, the woods, another picture of the wilderness, outside the city, to pray and prepare. Reading the scriptures, spending time in the Word, learning the Word. Jesus was in the wilderness with Satan, and he would come with temptation, and Jesus replied three times, it is written. He was ready to respond with the Word because he had been in the Word fasting so many times in the bible they go into the wilderness to fast we got to reclaim that and everybody wants to immediately jump well it can be legalistic yes it can be legalistic but if you, you want to discipline your flesh you want to control your impulses you want to demonstrate to yourself and to your family and to god that you place the spirit above the material do some fasting separating yourself To learn what you need from God. It's stripping your life down. It's losing everything. Just like you lost everything when you died with Christ in your salvation. Even the world gets this sometimes, don't they? Get alone. Be quiet. Be mindful, right? But there's a difference. In the desert, in the wilderness, we don't just meet ourselves, although you do. We talked about how Jacob went out into the wilderness and he met Laban, who was the worst possible version of who Jacob could be. The Lord's going to do the exact same thing with Israel at the Mount Sinai. but you don't just meet yourself. you meet God. You meet God out there. How many heroes of the faith meet God in the wilderness? Moses is going to. Elijah did. Elisha did. The wilderness is a holy place. Will you let that instruct you? It does no good to gripe on Facebook about how much time we spend on Facebook. (laughs) Everybody spends way too much time on their phones. You know what? I should tweet that. (laughs) Come on. We know this. Tune it out. Just turn the volume down. Unplug your headphones. Put it on airplane mode, which is prayer mode, if you didn't know that. And get alone with God. And there is something about getting into the wilderness. I'll tell you what. Just going out into the woods and praying. All my best prayer times have been in the woods. I don't know why. But there's something about getting back to nothing but me and God. John the Baptist was the voice crying in the wilderness. Remember that? What was he doing? He was calling people. John one twenty three. Make straight the way of the Lord. And how is he getting them to do that? Come out to the wilderness and be baptized. Get apart from your old life to where it's just you and God and go through this baptism, which is a picture of what? Death and resurrection. It's a whole other theme I don't have time to get into, but you always pass through the waters when you're going in and out of the wilderness. The Red Sea, for example. Jesus' baptism. Elijah striking the water And then Elisha striking it so that it passed. They had to go through the Jordan River to get into the promised land. The Lord is always crying out. And if you're going through a crisis, you're already there. You might as well make use of it. And if you're not, then just go willingly. Just go hear what John the Baptist has to say. And get it right. And he'll show you the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. Verses 16-22. through Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread." And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Story picks up a little bit, a little more happy here. He helps these girls draw water. Foreshadowing is heavy in this passage, because Moses is going to... Help the people find salvation through water. He's going to demonstrate strength in delivering people against the strength of oppressors. He's going to work out what is fair and what is just. Now we're in Midian. Remember, the Midianites were descendants of Abraham by Keturah, which was his second wife, if you remember that. After Sarah died, he remarried and had six sons, I believe it was. Genesis 25 talks about that. But when... Abraham was about to die. He sent his other sons out of the land because the promised land belonged to Isaac. So this is why the Midianites were living in, not necessarily the wilderness, but not in the promised land. And this is an interesting little thing I'm just going to touch on. He he encounters this man named Ruel, which means friend of God. The second R in J.R.R. Tolkien is Ruel, friend of God. That's the only place I've ever heard that name used outside of the Bible. Now, the question is, Later on, he's going to be called Jethro, and are they the same person? Now, he says he has seven daughters, and Moses is going to marry one of his daughters. Therefore, you would assume that Jethro's daughter and Jethro and rule are the same person. It is also possible that by daughter here, we should read granddaughter. Because that is a very common way the Old Testament discussed it. So what it could be is that he meets Rule, who has these granddaughters. Moses marries one of them. He's going to be there for 40 more years. Stands to reason that this man who was much older than him might have passed on. And later on, Jethro, who is the priest, is Moses' father-in-law, as we would put it. It's not really that significant, but it's it's an interesting thing to chase down in your own time. He also has another name that he's given later uh, that helps confuse it, but... The point is, this is the priest of Midian. And I should mention, it is very unlikely that he is a priest of the Lord. Because in chapter 18, verse 11, he's going to have a moment where he's like Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, now I know that the Lord is God of gods. So we're looking forward to the conversion of this priest. Nice guy, but doesn't seem to be worshiping the Lord as he ought to. But it doesn't say specifically. They welcome Moses into their home. He takes a wife whose name is Zipporah. The English has a Z there. That would have been a TS in the Hebrew. So, Tsipora, which means bird. It's actually a diminutive, so it's like birdie is, is what her name would have been. Later on in the New Testament, we see a woman named Sapphira. It's the same name, but it's just been New Testamentized through the Greek. And he begins a life. He has a son named Gershom because he says, I've been a sojourner. Ger means stranger, and Shom is like the word for there. So the word Gershom means stranger there. It's also tied to the word Garash, which means driven out, which also ties into Moses' situation. And he spends there, he's going to end up spending 40 years as a shepherd. And that's what the desert is for, to train you for what's coming. Already Moses has learned the proper use of strength to help the weak, not to self-aggrandize. And he's going to need a lot of strength of character later. In the wilderness, Joseph learned administration. Remember how he learned in, in Potiphar's house? And then he was the head of the prison. Then he was the head of Pharaoh's house. He was learning. Jacob learned to renounce sin and so that he could be renamed Israel. He had to finally say, I've had it. I'm not going to deal with Laban anymore. David learned to trust God in the wilderness Elijah learned God's provision in the wilderness. Paul has learned the gospel in the wilderness, that God gave him a special apostolic revelation in the wilderness. And Jesus Christ learned to resist temptation in the wilderness. And Moses is going to learn to be a shepherd and a defender of the weak. When we enter the training ground of God, it is uncomfortable, but it is absolutely necessary. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 8, the purpose of the wilderness is discipline. Not necessarily correction, but like boot camp. We're going to teach you boys some discipline to do this right. And Hebrews 12 tells us, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You can look back on some things maybe your mom or dad did to you. And you think, that's oh, a good thing they did that. Or you see a really bratty kid or somebody who's grown up and is your age and is still acting like a bratty kid. And you go, I'm so glad my parents whooped me when I was growing up. I've had that moment before. But it didn't seem pleasant at the time, did it? That's what discipline is like. It's the same thing with the Lord. You are disciplined in the wilderness to be like God. And later on you look back and you say, I wouldn't trade that hard time for the world because it made me into who God needed me to be. here's the deal. There's no clock on the wilderness. David was there for 15 years before he became king. Paul was there for 17 years before he was called to Antioch by Barnabas. Elijah was there for three years. Jesus was there for 40 days. Moses is going to be there for 40 years. How long do you need to be in the wilderness? Long enough. And that's the only answer. So if you're ever going through it and you're being trained, and you know you're being trained, but you're waiting for it to be done. He said, how long, O Lord? Long enough. And Moses is going to be there for a long time because he's got to unlearn a lot of things and learn some new ones. Verse 23 through 25, coming to the end now. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue for slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God hasn't made much of a presence in the early parts of Exodus. The only thing we've seen so far is that God blessed the midwives. We've seen him moving sovereignly, but his name hasn't come up. That was because it was building to this moment where the the literary value of Scripture becomes clear. You think, where's been God in all this? Oh, God knew and God heard. You leave this peaceful picture of Moses in Midian where he's got a family that he loves. He's got a new job that works for him. He's got a wife. He's got a son. And now we flash back to the oppression in Egypt. The old Pharaoh has died, but nothing's changed. probably was Thutmose III that died, and Amenhotep II took the kingship. If you take the late date for the book of Exodus, this would have been Seti I who died, and then Ramesses II that took the place of him. But now it seems to get worse. And there's a great little parallel here. They groaned, and God heard. They cried out, and God remembered. God saw, and he knew. God sees, and God knows. Isn't that a comfort to all of us? You know, it can be frustrating sometimes. we are like, Lord, don't you see what's going on? And God goes, yes. And you go, then why don't you do something about it? That's when you've got to trust that God is good. God had already told Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis, they will be in that land for four generations. Because remember he said the Amorites' iniquity was not complete. God said, when I deliver you out of Egypt, it's, it's curtains for the Amorites. So I'm not going to rush this even for you. That, that's the mercy of God, isn't it? He's giving these wicked people a room to repent. So all these people that want to talk about how the Lord's going to strike us down because of this thing we just did. The Lord is slow to anger. And he's great in mercy. And sometimes the Lord will allow his own people to suffer so that people who might repent will have the chance to repent. And we've got to learn to be all right with that. But here's the thing. God is ready to execute his plan. Even before they had prayed, he had already been preparing to answer that prayer. Maybe, you know, Moses has been in the wilderness for 38 years, and they start to, God, why aren't you answering our prayer? And God's like, I've already been answering your prayer. I preserved a child out of the infanticide from those years ago. Brought him up in Pharaoh's house. Now he's in the wilderness learning humility and learning to listen, and pretty soon I'm going to send him back. That's why we can't give up. And here's a lesson for us, because we're looking at things from Moses' perspective today. It's easy to get comfortable in the wilderness. You find an oasis, and it's nice, and you just want to stay there. Moses is in Midian. Why would he go back to Egypt? Oh, I'm not rich and famous anymore, but I've got a family. Nobody's trying to kill me. Nobody's intriguing against me. I don't have to think about my people suffering. Yeah, it's bad, but you know, out of sight, out of mind. Maybe Paul became comfortable in Tarsus, making tents, thinking, well, you know, I guess this is my life now. I guess this is where I am. What if David had become comfortable in Gath? David was ready to go to battle for the Philistines against Judah, and the Lord sovereignly kept him out of that. But he'd been comfortable there. Jacob had become comfortable in Padan Aram. Remember reading that story, you're like, Jacob, why are you still there? I I blew my mind. It's like, this guy tricked you into marrying the wrong woman. Why are you staying there? He keeps changing your wages. He's abusing you. He's manipulating you. He's not treating you right. Why are you still there? It's the same thing for Moses. Because the evil that Moses has been raised up to defeat has not been resolved yet. You might think, well, everything is fine for me, but you've got to go back. You can't stay there. You are needed to go back and take care of what's been going on. God is ready to deliver his people out of Egypt. Moses is the man. Moses has no right to get comfortable because his people are suffering. It's the same thing for you in your life. God's doing a lot of great things through me. I'm learning things in the Bible. This is great. That's all wonderful. You've got to go home and fix your family. You've got to go home and repair your marriage. You've got to decide that in this house, we're not doing this anymore. You've got to step up. You have no idea. We talked about this with the midwives. You have no idea what your impact could be. Don't, don't ever think that just doing something small is small. Small things make a big thing. Remember Esther in Esther 4.14? You've got to go and talk to your husband, the king, because he says that we're allowed to be attacked and killed and there's going to be a giant pogrom that's going to run through. It's going to be like knocked in the Persian Empire. Says, I can't go. I can't look at this. Like if I go to him, I might get killed. And you picture Mordecai like trying to keep it together here. It's like we're all going to be killed if you don't get up and move. He says, "If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this?" <laughs> to me, the most terrifying thing to consider is God raising somebody else up to do what he had called me to do because I was too lazy. And look how he says that to her. But this might be the reason you're alive. This might be the whole purpose of why you've been raised up to the princess of Persia. Moses, you've got to go back. We're going to get to this next week, but you can't stay there because things are not better. Same thing for you. Oh, you might be getting better, but what about your parents or your kids or your workplace or your neighborhood or your nation? You can't just stand back. There's a wonderful story from the time of the Reformation, and I love the way this was phrased. John Calvin had written the first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. It was an amazing bestseller. It was the first outline of Protestant theology, and people everywhere were reading this. And John Calvin goes through Geneva, on his way to, I believe he was going to um, Wittenberg with, to be with Martin Luther. And one of the guys found out he was there. And he's like, hey, man, you need to stay and be our pastor. We need you to stay here and teach us these things. And he goes, no, no, see, I'm not a pastor. I, I'm a scholar. I'm a writer. I'm trying to run away from persecution. I don't really want trouble. I just want to go. And, and the line that I love, he says, may God condemn your repose if you leave us here without your help. May God condemn your repose. May God condemn all that peace and quiet you're chasing down, John Calvin. We need you. The world needs you, Christian. You have a responsibility to go when God says go. You can't live in the wilderness. That takes great courage, and it will be our lesson for next week. But you need to remember that, that the purpose of the wilderness is to prepare you to return. So what do we learn from this today? It is good to embrace what God has called you to do, to embrace your destiny. It's good to be excited about it, but you must wait on the Lord. Moses was ready to fight, man. We're going to take these Egyptians down. But later on, what is Moses going to tell the children of Israel? Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you, and you will hold your peace. That's where God needed to get him. God wants to make you ready for the task to which he's called you in the wilderness. You can enter the wilderness through failure, like Moses. You tried and it didn't work. Now you don't know what to do. That confusion is the wilderness. It can happen through sin. You messed up, like Jacob. And now everything is topsy-turvy. That's the wilderness. It can happen just through despondency, like Elijah. It's just not working. And that upheaval is the wilderness. Or You can enter voluntarily like Jesus Christ did. He allowed the Spirit to lead him into the wilderness. He would frequently withdraw to desolate places and pray to be made ready for what God has called him to do. Let God make you ready for your destiny.